This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This metro strike is quite interesting. It goes into another day. Uh, Global News' Amar Khan's been on the case. He was with us yesterday checking in on this particular issue. And we were talking on the air about where it goes. And he's made the point a couple times in reports about what a living wage is in Toronto. It's uh, according to group $33 is uh, per hour. I would assume at 40 hours a week can let you live in Toronto. It probably can't let you save much money. It probably can't let you pay off debt. But $33 is is that number. Um, They're not workers aren't asking for $33. And um, I have news for the workers. If they were, Metro would would not even talk to you. They would simply um, move along and find new workers. Some of the problem in this is I think we're watching this pretty closely because I think we all could put put ourselves in the position of working there. Maybe we worked in fast food, grocery stores, retail, like maybe clothing retail. Maybe you worked at The Gap or uh, I always wanted to work at Club Monaco. That sounded a little fancier than The Gap, but uh, but I never I never dropped a resume off. Um, but I worked at a restaurant bar and got minimum wage um, plus tips once I started waiting tables. But it was about 14 months working there where I, if I tell you how much I made per hour, you'll know that I, I my first job was in the very late 1980s. I made four seventy five an hour. That was it. I think I worked, I got a paycheck for two weeks, and I think I worked uh, 22 hours in 12th grade, maybe, and got a paycheck that was like, um, <laughs> uh, no, maybe it was 32 hours, because the paycheck was over 100 bucks, but it was about 118 bucks, and you're thinking, I'm going to spend every dime of this in the next uh, four hours. Like that's how it felt. I was living at home in 12th grade and you're thinking this is money I didn't have yesterday and I'm going to make sure I don't have it tomorrow. The responsibility for adult Metro workers, and I would guess students is a lot more significant now at this point because they're asking for more money than a, a PSW gets in a long-term care home in Ontario. That dollar amounts $22 to $23. Metro employees want more. And I understand them looking at the company going, you had a 10.4% increase in year-over-year profits. And I, I, I'm i done listening to the grocery giants explain away that they have to pay more for their goods, that they have to pay, and, and they do, they do. They have to pay more for the trucks to bring the food. They have to bring more to store the food. They have to. There's a lot of significant costs that did not exist two years ago. But if you're making more in year-over-year profits, those costs have been usurped and you are benefiting at the public trough because we have to buy food. I've made this case maybe for the better part of a year now. So if you've heard it once before, apologies. But you have to buy groceries. You don't have to have a a fancy vacation. You don't have to buy a new set of AirPods. You don't have to have that expensive gym membership. Go work out somewhere less expensive. But there are just tangible, um, unavoidable costs. And the last time I checked, eating's one of them. You have to eat. You can change some of the things you buy at these stores. We even did something where um, we found that chicken legs were less expensive than chicken breasts. 
we found that out like three days ago and had a great dinner the other night that for four of us, that's our household, that was chicken legs. And we're like, I don't know how much we saved, $4, $5, but we felt good about it because you had to make choices about this. Um, the proposed wage, in, wage increase for part-time workers at Metro doesn't get to 20 bucks. Again, I don't know how Metro could continue to find workers if you're asking people to live in downtown Toronto, work in downtown Toronto um, for 20 bucks. Let me not necessarily defend the companies here, but these companies didn't entirely create this situation themselves. They didn't. Okay. Um, there's no way that what I would call menial labor will ever be at the top of the pay scale in situations like this. It never has been. It never will be. It isn't going to be in the next couple days. But do companies have a responsibility and a servitude to allow workers to be paid enough to survive on? That's what the distinction is. Listen to these two women tell our own Amar Khan yesterday about their scenario and their struggle. They work at a Scarborough metro location. I've heard a, a lot of my coworkers talking about using food banks and and my myself, like I said, I've been 25 years with the company. I live in geared to income housing because I can't afford market rent anywhere else in the city. It is very frustrating because day to day we have to deal with the customer. Like I work in hot food and I mostly do like the cooking and everything and it's a total pressure and to hear that they're making all this money and you know they don't pay us enough you know all we are asking just give us a little bit more a piece of the pie we help them to make this money so we deserve better and she's allowed to feel that way and she's certainly not shy about saying it um, the, the the name of the game feels like in the grocery industry, and, and one of the big issues that, that we've learned in the last couple of days about this situation with Metro is they seem to want as many part-time people as possible. They don't want you getting to full-time hours. The more part-timers you have, the fewer full-timers you need. And uh, and as a result, you don't have to pay people out for any, any form of benefits. You don't have to pay to – you can limit their benefits. You can limit – uh, what they get for overtime if full-time employees are, are working overtime. But I'd also bring this up. It is that that is a business, especially with cash outs, where if you're like me sometimes, just as easy to bag yourself, just as easy to um, to scan yourself. And we're going to get to a point in time where there's just fewer people working. Once the, once the stuff's on the shelf and you got somebody to maintain the scanners, that's a problem. Because I see the same faces. I, I really need to do this probably more is go to the cashier line. But I always feel like it's a slower grind. And people who need it are are, are in those, those particular lines. Love to know how you feel about this and how you view this. Again, th- they're asking for more than a PSW gets in a long-term care home. Not a soul listening to me right now or across the country would somehow suggest that that's a that's that's not a harder job. That's a harder. That's going to take its toll on you and and the work you you're working with seniors in long term care. Uh, we shouldn't be paying those people twenty two twenty three dollars. We should pay be paying them notably more. Um, but this is this again a scenario the company didn't entirely create themselves. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Prime Minister was in uh, Hamilton. I saw him at a news conference with Andrea Horvath, who's Hamilton's mayor. That's an interesting 
uh, dynamic. Not that there was ever a tension um, between the two, but um, they're announcing that they're going to build more affordable housing in Hamilton. Every major city needs this uh, right now. But it was the comment that Justin Trudeau is about to make here that we're going to play for you. That's getting a ton of attention. Um, we all know that the federal government is increasing immigration numbers um, to uh, like unprecedented levels. If they were precedented, we'd, we'd have seen it already and seen the impact. So there's a little bit of a trial balloon with the levels of and, you know, the numbers, if you don't, 500,000 a year, 500,000 immigrants. And by the way, they'll all be from different countries. They'll all be at different levels of being able to add to the economy immediately, different levels of education, different levels of training. And there is a balance between um, people that are, are coming here for what I would call a, a, a brand new foundation upstart and people that are um, educated professionals who will stimulate the economy instantly. I get it. And, and I would absolutely tell you there needs to be a balance of both. What's that going to strain? What's well, going to strain health care? Like you come in, you get a health card. You get you get, like there's no other way to put it. You get medical benefits for life when you show up. That's our system right now. And we can talk about that system being tweaked. But I, I would say to them, if they're new Canadians and they're they are landed residents and they get a work visa and eventually citizenship, that's the game. And and that's fair. And 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 I support it. Absolutely I do. But it's a lot of people to give medical benefits for life for. The other issue, obviously, where else are we strained? Doy, housing, of course it is. Where do the lion's share of new Canadians settle? Three places, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. That's it. That's it. They don't, they're not in Regina. They're not in St. John or St. John's. They're not in Charlottetown. They're not in Saskatoon. And they sure aren't in um, one of my favorite places to reference. I don't know why. It just sounds, rolls off the tip of your tongue. Sarnia. They're not. They just aren't. We like the mayor there, Mike Bradley, but they're not. They don't become Sarnians. Justin Trudeau said this yesterday about the housing responsibility. I want you to listen to the cut, and and then I've got a reaction on the other side. Clearly, uh, there's simply not enough places for people to live right across uh, the lower and middle income uh, spectrum, and that's why uh, projects like this moving forward. And this isn't the only project, as I mentioned. There's a bundle of projects the federal government investing in, uh, 45. Uh, million dollars uh, that are going towards these uh, over 200 new units uh, is a part of the solution. But we know there is a lot more to do. And I'll be blunt as well. Housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. It's uh, not something that we have direct carriage of, but it is something that we can and must help with. Okay. I mean, he made the point to Olivia about Olivia Chow because he was asked about the Toronto refugee situation. He was asked about people arriving in Canada and sleeping on the street. And he did say his government's going to be there. But that's sort of like, you know, you're invited to a party and it started at eight and you look and you go, it's 915. Where's Justin? And Justin calls and says, don't worry, we're going to be there. When? When is we're going to be there? We're not there right now. We're not giving Toronto everything they need to handle this situation, nor are we in Vancouver, by the way. People sleep on the street in Vancouver. You're seeing, you and I, we talk about it most mornings, you're seeing more and more people struggling, more and more people pushing shopping carts, more and more tents, more and more people wandering around. Um, it's not safe for them, but many people dictate and document it's not safe for their communities either. 
So, by the way, in 2015, when Justin Trudeau was elected, he said, I'm going to I'm going to get affordable housing done for Canadians. I'm going to do it better than Stephen Harper did it for whatever it was the last 11 years. But but how can you promise that if it's not a primary responsibility? It sounds like it sounds like I mean, I could be crazy. It sounds like somebody will take credit for something when they can actually push things forward. But if if it ends up being a crisis. Hey, that's not our responsibility here. I, I understand that some things are being done and I understand this just didn't happen with the snap of a finger. We fell down for lots of prime ministers and lots of decades building more housing. When you see stats like, Hey, there was more housing built in Toronto in 1978 than in 2018, a 40 year difference in time, regardless of the swelling population, you're like, that's really, really worrying. I like what John Pasalis does. We have him on. He's a a real estate broker. But I liked what he said yesterday. While many will argue that our PM is correct, that they don't have direct control over the supply of housing, they're missing the point. The point is that they've been promising a solution, as in tripling housing completions, that they now admit is not their responsibility. Pasalis continues, and this is the more important part, but also they have direct control over the demand for housing through Canada's population growth targets. Bingo. He writes, they pretend that the demand for housing is irrelevant because the cause of rapidly rising costs is a lack of supply. That's silly. And it is that level of silly. This is why there are call outs for certain municipalities who feel like they're getting pushed into building housing. Now, many of them are doing a lousy job of it. Many, many municipalities are getting castigated. Uh, When we have Mike Moffat on, he points out the municipalities and we've talked about Mississauga and Mayor Bonnie Crombie there. It's a lousy record on housing. It's a lousy record on housing and why her opponents call her a NIMBY mayor. Her opponents in Mississauga, her opponents elsewhere in Peel region, and some of her opponents for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Like there is already a record on housing. I don't know Adil Shamji's record on housing. He doesn't have one. He's never been, he's never had the opportunity to build housing. Nate Erskine Smith's never had the opportunity to build housing. But, but Crombie's record's fairly obvious in this, on this front. It's something, again, it's food for thought. But yeah, the prime minister doesn't have direct control over supply, but he sure has direct control over the solution for that lack of supply. And they're just starting to get around to it right now. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, this is a great pleasure for Toronto Today. Our next guest has been coming and entertaining us here for the better part of four decades. We're almost at four decades exactly. I'm I'm showing his first show here was in 1984, but what's what's a few months amongst friends? His new album out is called Dialogue, and he'll play a great triple built with uh, Berlin out of Los Angeles and um, a friend from the UK, Boy George and Culture Club. He is uh, award-winning musician Howard Jones. It's great to have you, like I said, back in Toronto, but, uh, but out doing what you do. You've been here a lot, though, recently, which in the last several years, which is great. We get to see you multiple times, or if we're away, one weekend in the summer, you come back the next year. You're very good to us here. Yeah, well, um, you know, I have such a connection with Toronto. I have such a connection with with Ontario because I lived just up the road uh, in 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 Ottawa for three years in in the big formative part of my life when I was just getting into music. I played in my first band here, saw my first gig here. So Canada has always been like a huge part of my of my upbringing, you know. So it feels like a sort of almost like a homecoming to come back to Ontario to play and Toronto in particular. Yeah. Well, you were, I'll tell you what, you're, you're my first in a way. Um, I don't, I don't say that to too many people, obviously 
but um, you were going to be my first at the age of 12 um, concert where my parents trusted me to go and, you know, not be abducted by uh, devil worshippers or something. Um, but you were you were playing in the summer of 85 and we missed you. I think you you were um, you were sick. And then we saw you in November on the Dream Into Action Tour. So in London at Alumni Hall in Ontario. So just down the road the other way. And you were still my first because I didn't see anybody else between June and November of uh, 1985 that year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I have some memorable. Um, I always remember us playing Maple Leaf Gardens. Mm -hmm. Really good fun, um, you know. On that, I think it was the Dream Interaction Tour. With that was that, and uh, we had we had we had all kinds of problems. Like one of our one of my backing singers had forgotten their passport um, back in uh, <laughs> back in the US. So, so she she so we had to have two backing singers instead of three. Um, but you know, there was all yeah, there, but it was all, all kinds of excitement on that tour. It was amazing. But I've had such great gigs in Toronto. I, um, I you know, I, I just, uh, I, you know, you know, remember, um, just remember it so vividly. It was great. Um, when you're out there to start, Howard, when things really kick in for you, um, with the songs off Humans Live and New Song, What Is Love, they're all on the radio a lot. Uh, you're, you're like albums out quickly in the spring of 85 then you've got another one out fall of 86 is that i've always wanted to ask a, a, an artist who has three albums did you just have a lot to say did you have a lot built up were you thinking let's go 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 tour album i know there's always pressure from record companies to sell something when it's hot when you look back it, was it sort of a 50 50 thing or were they were they going hey if you've got more stuff we're it's, it's, they're, they're going great and you're selling out gigs so let's do it how did you look at that in retrospect um, you know, it, I mean, I mean, for me, it was, I, I suppose, a slight panic that uh, I was really hoping to keep it all going. You know, like obviously the first album, you've got all the songs ready and written and mm -hmm. kind of have, I've been playing them out live with my one man show for about, for about three years. Um, and then it comes to the second album and I've got no, no songs, just a few ideas. So um, I was just thinking, I really want to keep this going. Because I really am enjoying what I'm doing here, so um, so Dream Interaction was written on the road, you know, and I was uh, had a little studio in my in my dressing room every night, and I would like work on songs and then come in, back onto the bus and play the songs to the band and see what they thought. And because there was such energy, you know, about playing um, to those great audiences every night, you know, it 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 got infected into the new music I was playing. So things. Things can only get better. For instance, was written on the road and and developed, you know, on the bus and in my dressing room. So, you know, had that energy because I wanted wanted the audience to be able to sing along with me. You know, that's my one of my favorite things. So, lots of whoa whoa choruses and <laughs> lots of hooky lines to sing. It's a joy then to to hear them sing it as well. Yeah, we we sing it back to you a, a fair bit. And and <laughs> the pressure, I I think when we're when we're just fans of a of an artist, we don't. We don't think of the pressure and then we hear interviews years afterwards and you're like, oh, yeah, we were e even massive bands like you. How could George Michael feel pressure to make his first solo album? He was in Wham! Or how could Duran Duran feel pressure on their fourth album after they've had three smash ones? But is, was it there? Did you, did you feel it? Um, well, you know, it, only only the, the, the thing of like, I really want to keep this going mm -hmm. and 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 really want to. um you know, this is my life now, and so it's really important for me to keep making good work and and connecting with people. Which I, I've, you know, I mean, in a way, you know, at the end of the eighties, things cooled down, 
and uh, it was a bit of a relief because I don't think I would have been able to sustain that kind of life. You know, three, six, five days a year, I'm in the studio or touring or doing interviews, doing TV. And, and it was like, I, I couldn't have sustained that my whole life. So, so it cooled down a bit at the end of the 80s and then I was able to keep making albums, but, you know, have a little bit little less pressure on me to deliver, you know. Howard Jones is our guest, of course, on Toronto Today. He's at Bud Stage tonight with Culture Club uh, and with Berlin as well. There's a lot of artists who were really successful like you were who kind of say that, like radio changed in the 90s. There's a lot of e even, you know, the even bands that were that were selling 20 million albums like Bon Jovi looked at the 90s and grunge and all this Seattle sound and some techno and and said, uh, is there still room for us? And it, it felt like by about 97, 98, Howard, people were, I remember you had a you had a song on the radio, Let the People Have Their Say. Um, I saw you in, in that year with Human League and and the very same uh, culture club. And you're thinking, the audiences on mass seem more willing to embrace that. But maybe that's like everything. Like, everything falls out of favor um, for a few years at a time. They come back and then it's like, okay, yeah, people will always be here for these these eight songs or these 12 songs. Yeah, yes, yes, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you have your time in the spotlight and then the spotlight quite naturally will go to a new generation of artists and, and genres of music. And and in a way, that's really good because pop, popular music should be like that. But then, you know, the generation that grew up with you, um, they, you know, that, 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 that 10 years that they spent with you and, and you know, and your music, they want to celebrate then later on, uh, later on in their life when maybe they you know, had kids and the, now the other kids can be safe at home and and they can come out to shows again and and really enjoy uh, being together and hearing you know all the tunes that they know and love. So I think that's what what is is fantastic for me to be um, you know we're seeing that wave happening now and because uh, the '80s was so out of favor for so long, you know, I mean it was like. Oh, you know, but it's, it's a great, a great era of music. I mean, they really, um, you know, the amount of great songs that were being written during that time, really incredible. So I'm glad it's um, found good favor again. Listen, yeah. I can't thank you enough for the time uh, and for all the music you've given us. And uh, I, I hope you have a great gig tonight. And uh, I would tell you to come back and see us. But yeah, it's like a second home for you. And we love seeing yeah. you here in Toronto. Great, fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg. Really enjoyed the interview. Thanks for talking to me. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Here's Sophie Schmidt on the edge of the area. Now Diana Matheson, one last chance for Canada. Sophie Schmidt. Sophie Schmidt takes a deflection. Matheson! Is that the goal that wins bronze for Canada? Diana Matheson in stoppage time. It's Canada 1, France 0. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all were slightly younger then, but I absolutely remember who I was sitting with. I stayed at work late, and uh, that matchup in Coventry, um, where Coventry City play, and we have the goal scorer on the line right now, and uh, so much more than that. Diana Matheson joins us on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. I don't I don't think um, Luke Wildman's call had the orchestral music live when you scored that goal. I feel like that was added in after. But that would have been a bit presumptuous, but, but yeah. it's a great memory, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little older now too. It feels like. <laughs> Thanks for having me. By the way, I watched that clip again last night, Diana, and you're pointing, you're pointing at at someone to potentially pass to, and then you get a deflection. It comes right to you, and you make no mistake on the finish. 
Do you, does that does that recollection make sense? You're nil nil with France. Probably it's right at the death. You're going to go to penalties or extra time, I should say, if you don't score. What were you pointing at? You know, it was one of those plays I was asked to describe it right after the game yeah. uh, for for an interview. Couldn't remember a thing. So I had no idea at the time. I think everything just, you know, blacked (laughs) out and the time slowed down and I put it in. Only, you know, since I've had the pleasure of seeing the replay replay a few times. So I got a better picture of what happened. Yeah, well, uh, quite a moment. And and I really think that's the moment that very much opened the door. Uh, Your teammates became household names. Your team became more prominent in terms of coverage. Um, I I think we did the program better. All, All I could say yesterday around, I probably said it, around 6:20 a.m. let alone 8 a.m. Diana is is gosh damn it like it just it was a it was a lousy result not for a lack of effort not for a lack of wanting it um but it was um sometimes it's going to go your way and sometimes it isn't what was your reaction to the team crashing out before the before the knockout stage yeah i think i mean the, like the rest of canada i think we were hoping to be in this tournament another few weeks and follow this team along for the ride so it was yeah, it was, it was disappointing. There was a bit of a heavy morning yesterday. I, I think everyone could see we didn't get the Canadian performance we won yesterday, and the Aussies were in front of a, a hometown, and, and they did, and we just weren't good enough on the day. Well, someone said to me yesterday, never, ever leave it in a World Cup, uh, a, a Euro, anything where you need a result against a home team hosting a major tournament. And and maybe that's the issue. Maybe the issue was the first game against Nigeria where you probably need the three points. That way you don't have to get them against Australia in front of 30,000 screaming fans who, who don't want to see their own team, their host team crash out. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's kind of two ways to talk about the, the team this year. I think the on-field performances, I mean, Jesse Fleming, Fleming said it before the World Cup, you need five good performances and some luck to win the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And we only played, you know, one or two really solid halves of football. So I think all the players know that. They, they knew it wasn't, you know, good enough performances to advance in this World Cup. That's the strongest field there's been to date. And then, of, of course, there's been all the other issues off the field that have been going on for Canada soccer. The players fighting for enough funding for their programming, for the youth national team, for CBA. And, and absolutely, that stuff's taken a, you know, a mental toll over the last year or two. And I think didn't help to have that heading into a World Cup. I think so. Uh, I think so as well. And and before, uh, I definitely want to talk about Project Eight. I want to talk about uh, the league two summers from now. I want to talk about a ton of that. But you just nailed it. I mean, we're waking up this morning. People are waking up and the the U.S. was drawn by Portugal, uh, nil-nil, something that just would never have happened, it feels like, five years ago, let alone 15. I watched Colombia beat Germany Sunday morning with the goal of the tournament from that 18-year-old that plays for Real Madrid. Like, there's just balance, Diana. And it's awesome to see. It's phenomenal for uh, for the world's game to see this kind of balance. But it's real and, and it's going to knock some favorites out of big tournaments. Yeah, I think there'll be some other upsets for sure. I know Canada's out of this, but hopefully Canadians are still going to tune in. They expanded the tournament for the first time to 32 teams. And there's, you know, some countries invest in women's sport and some invest less. And there was definitely some concern that it might dilute the field a bit, but it hasn't happened at all. You know, Philippines, huge performances. Haiti looks good. Jamaica's looking good. Yeah, and, and you said it, Colombia is a really exciting story. Uh, Linda Casado is that teenage player who's just, she's unbelievable to watch. Yeah. So I hope Canadians will still tune in. Well, you know, um, you, you know my wife, Rachel, we watch the games all the time, and, and we're watching USA play Vietnam in their first game. And 
they're hanging in there. They're like they're being physical. They're not intimidated. They only lost three nil, and people were predicting. I know the U.S. beat Thailand thirteen nil, and there was a lot of controversy about the goal yeah. celebrations, running up the score. Like I, it's great that we're talking about women's soccer on a level playing field because I'm worried. 48 teams is too much for the men's World Cup. I was worried 24 was too much for the Euros, uh, which I follow passionately. But this this parody is working. This tournament is do- is documenting that. Yeah, and and we've been seeing it. The, the Women's World Cup's a really good benchmark every four years. You know, what's going on in the world? How much is being invested? How many people are watching? And, and the answer is last time around in 2019, 1.2 billion people watched. Mm-hmm. And this time they're aiming for two billion. Like women's, we know soccer globally, not a small game. Uh, <laughs> and women's soccer, you know, the investment's just gone in the last two decades. So it's it's growing now. It's growing quickly. And where a lot of the money initially went into the women's national teams around the world into these big tournaments, it's it's shifted in the last ten years to really invest in the professional game around the world where these players are spending, you know, 95% of the year training. And it's the investment in the, the professional game that's really been moving things forward uh, in, in countries. I love seeing it. It's been great. And, uh, and yeah, I, it's, I'm really disappointed Canada's out, but it's, it's gonna, not going to dilute my interest. Diana Matheson's joining us on Toronto today. When I lay out for you that four years from now will be the 27 World Cup and your league, the Canadian Women's Pro Soccer League, will be in its third summer by that point in time. How does that land for you? How does that sound? Yeah, it sounds not too bad at all. Yeah, the, I mean, the timing's never been better to launch this thing. Um, I mean, even trying to do this four or five years ago, I think women's sport has grown so quickly. Cultural attitudes towards women in sport have grown and improved, and we've got rid of some of the myths and biases. The case used to be, you know, building a pro league is the right thing to do. Now you can say, yeah, it's absolutely the right thing to do. Too many girls drop out of sport. There's all these positive outcomes in sport, but also there's a return on investment here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Same as men. We've got data now around viewership and broadcast and how fast it rises when you actually put it on accessible screens to Canadians. Um, so it's it's a business case here, uh, and and that's what we're looking to capitalize in Canada. So hopefully, when we get to 2027, I know when we get to 2027, we're going to have a roster of of a Canadian team that includes Canadian clubs, which is which is the norm. You've got the three franchises so far. Um, is there a timeline for you, even the rest of the year? I know not during the World Cup's the time to do it, but would you like to announce more franchises before the end of the calendar year? Yep, absolutely. They'll they'll be. We've got uh, one more ready to go before we're too long. So definitely before the end of the year, uh, we're pushing to get eight teams mm-hmm. uh, as quick as we can do it. Selling selling during the Women's World Cup as well. Um, we've all stayed home and are working, and we've got some great inbound interest coming in now. So like you said, we're in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary right now. We want to be coast to coast. We want a team. In the prairies, we're looking at Saskatoon or Winnipeg. We want a team in the Maritimes. We're having great conversations there. Uh, So great momentum. And absolutely, we're looking to announce as many teams as we can before the end of the year and then lock them all down in in Q1 of next year. Diana Matheson is our guest on Toronto today. You're you're a teenager in 1999 when um, I I think, you know, Canada went to the World Cup, but then it was 12 teams. but But the final was massive, right? Rose Bowl. The yeah. Brandy Chastain moment. Mia Hamm's a glo- everybody knows who Mia Hamm is, a global superstar on that team. 
Like, I'm sure that gave you a, an oomph and a push. I think with anything, right? Movies, the media, music, you have to be able to see yourself. When, when you think back to who you were then, still in high school, seeing that moment, the idea of playing for Canada in, in a Women's World Cup, how much more did that push you? Because it, was, it just wasn't a possibility 10 years prior. Had you been 10 years older, that's not there for you. And it was there for you back then. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm 39 now and the 99ers for me were everything. Mm -hmm. They were it. You know, there weren't women's pro leagues yet. Women's soccer wasn't in the Olympics yet at that point. So there's nothing to watch. Mm -hmm. And then here, here was women's soccer on TV in 99 doing these incredible things in front of these huge crowds. And for a generation in the U.S. and for a generation in Canada, that was the group that really inspired and you said it visibility is everything we know girls drop out of sport at three times the rate in this country as boys do even though they start uh in the same numbers uh, at the beginning and that's because of of things to do like visibility of role models and available pathways and the best role models are the ones you can see period so that's that's a huge piece of what this league is going to do it's going to add these role models bring these you know, badass Canadian women to Canada on a weekly basis and, and kids can watch them play day in and day out. What I love about your potential league, which again, for our listeners, would start in two years is I also, it doesn't feel it, you're going to put some phenomenal women who've played the game or who know the business model or who are just great at, great at, great at management. They, they can manage up. You're putting them in great positions to succeed. But I'll tell you this as a male, I don't feel excluded from the process. And and I think early days, maybe early WNBA days, early other days, it felt like, wait a minute, is this league just for women? I feel included in this mix. And I'm telling you that because I'm watching all these games and I see it on the sidelines. I see it in the stands. That's that's the business case as well, is you're going to make a league that 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 women and men are going to want to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good. That's um, great to hear. Um, I think I heard a metaphor the other day. Someone said, you know, they were asking about women's soccer and, you know, how it compares to men, et cetera. And I heard really heard great metaphor about how, you know, soccer is, say, like chips, like a bag of chips. Men's is original flavor, let's say. <laughs> and then you've got women's soccer, salt and vinegar. You've got futsal, barbecue. You've got beach soccer. You know, you've got all these flavors. And everyone likes you know, to have one kind of chips or, or try a few. And guess what? For a lot of people, women's soccer is the favorite product. And we know now that, you know, folks are watching this thing. The folks that are watching this thing are mostly sports fans. And there's a huge crossover between uh, uh, men watching sports and men watching women's sports as well. It's it's a great product and it's for everyone. Will there, um, with, uh, will there be fines for uh, swearing? Does that affect Alicia Chapman? Will your league... <laughs> I mean, we all saw that. You know uh, I, I, it, <laughs> it was a human moment. <laughs> yeah, that's Chappie for you. I think uh, Chappie's going to be Chappie, you know? So uh, hopefully we can get Chappie back here, and then, then we can talk about appropriate language. <laughs> I, like, I like the realness of it. It, uh, it, uh, it was relatable to everybody who, uh, who gets, uh, gets a, a bad foul call on, them, on the pitch. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and, uh, and I, I want to talk lots more as franchises get announced and, and the league goes forward. But um, it's going to be a smash. Uh, Diana, I really appreciate you coming on this morning. Yeah, thanks for having uh, thanks for having me so much. And I think Canadians recognize like we have a huge opportunity mm. here. We're world class in women's soccer, third largest player pool in the world, incredible market. So we're just getting started. Thanks for this this morning, Diana.
Thanks for having me. Diana Masson, bronze medalist for Team Canada Soccer. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. There's going to be a message, and this is the first of its kind. I know, I know. Our government overloads never let us do anything. Freedom, liberty. Actually, I think those are important concepts. I think you know that I believe in those things. But um, Canada's going to put health warnings starting today on individual cigarettes the guy that was ahead of me it rarely i don't like going into the uh, gas station convenience store um too often because either someone's scratching off nine lottery tickets in a row i always am behind lottery guy or i'm behind cbw cigarette buying woman i got no time for you to no not that one the larger pack not that one but here are some of the warnings on the cigarettes cigarettes damage your organs in big the all caps you ever get an all cap email or even a couple words in all caps? Um, they mean business. Cigarettes cause cancer. Tobacco smoke harms children. Cigarettes cause impotence. Hey, back off. Cigarettes cause leukemia. How about this one? And this is the one that a lot of the international press, because this story is in The Guardian. This story is in, uh, in The New York Times this morning. What we're doing with cigarettes. Poison in every puff. Poison in every puff. That's a message from Health Canada. If you're a smoker, do you feel discriminated against? Does society stigmatize you? Do you think people look at you and say, I don't want that person in my workplace? Do you think people look at you and say, I don't want to hang out with that person? I don't want to invite him to the ball game. I don't want him in my backyard. I don't want him around or her for that matter. I mean, we get to do what we want in our own personal relationships, and that's fine. The job thing's a different story. The job thing's quite a different story. You may not realize this. A Gallup study from 2018 showed 56% of smokers feel discriminated against in the workplace, at least occasionally, because of their smoking. Just one in six Americans, 17%, who are overweight, felt they were discriminated against because of their weight. I don't know if that number would be the same. I'm telling you what the numbers are. Um, Smokers feel discriminated against. Overweight people don't. So if you're a smoker, tell me where you feel this. Tell me if you think there's a stigma. And I I think we should also call ourselves out when we're non-smokers. And I will during this segment and the next one as well. And document that I think if you're a non-smoker, I want you to tell me if you discriminate against smokers. I want you to tell me. I want you to, to, to be po- totally honest and say, until this person quits, I want less to do with them. If this person only had quit, oh, I, I'd be still going out with them. I'd have married them. I mean, like, I, I don't know how someone that never touches a cigarette is dating somebody who smokes 20 a day, who's uh, CBW in, in the convenience store. I have no clue. And I have a funny story about dating a smoker once. It's back like I was 23, 24 years of age. There's like an 8%, okay, an 18%, okay, a 38% chance she's listening, but whatever. 416-870-6400. I thought I could change her. I think that's probably, I'm better off that I didn't, but I think I thought I could change. No woman's ever thought, I can change him. You know what? (laughs) I got to make him a better person. How'd that work out? I'm good with listening to smokers tell me your story. What's unfair? What should be changed? What's ridiculous overreaction to who you are? And you can weigh in as well on on these new labels um, for uh, the coming from Health Canada. (laughs) 
Do you need to look and see poison in every puff in big black capital letters on your cigarettes? Like, like the concept is Health Canada is making it virtually impossible for you to avoid these health warnings. But again, um, none of this should be some form of a, of a newsflash. And if no country follows our lead here, aren't we going to be like, yeah, this just seemed like it was an us thing. And the uh, and, 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 you know, the accusing of just giving signals and not doing anything tangible may make a difference. But I'll tell you, I'll give you a reason in a second. Calls are lining up. I'll give you a reason in a second why I heard somebody from the Canadian Cancer Society give me actually a good reason why why they should be on individual cigarettes. I'm not sure they should, but this was his reason. Let's kick it off with Cam. Cam, thanks for the phone call. You go right ahead. Hey, uh, yeah, I've been smoking for a long time. Uh, I'm not proud of it, nor am I uh, not proud of it. Uh, yeah, smoking in the workplace inside the office, we've come a long way. That's not allowed anymore. Well, what, what was it? What it used to be like when it was allowed? How weird was that to think of now? Well, everybody was smoking in the office, okay, and drinking <laughs> coffee, okay? <laughs> like, have you ever had seven cups of coffee? Uh, the coffee, if, if they ban the coffee, I'm out, Cam. I, uh, okay. I, I will, uh, I'll, I'll collect. It was a problem as well, but the thing is, uh, 24 bucks a pack right now, down to 15 and sometimes less. Uh, geez, it's paying taxes. I don't need printing on cigarettes to tell me that it's bad for me. Um, that's my choice. Did you ever give a really hard push to quitting? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I did, uh, quit for six months and smoked again. And the first effect that I had was getting dizzy from a cigarette. Now here's what we have. We have the magic wall in convenience stores where mm-hmm. nothing's supposed to be shown, but you know what? You walk into some of the pot stores, it's walking into a jewelry store with very educated people on what the mixtures are. It's still smoking. And if anybody's done a done a hit through uh, a water pipe, well, look at the residue that's left in the water. Well, and and we and and Cam, you you led me. Thank you for the phone call. You led me to exactly where I wanted to go, and that's the vape pens. And that's I think we're again sort of behind on where that needs to be. And if vaping is the new smoking, um, that ain't great. The numbers are concerning, concerning. And I'm not as concerned about drinking. I'm not as concerned about uh, drinking as I am marijuana for like for, for, for younger people do what you want when you're over 30 over 25 I'd, I, what, what are we going to do how, how are we going to stop the trains left the station the cows have left the barn all that stuff but the vaping's a big big problem I'm seeing this 17% of Canadians age 15 years and of old and older have 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 ever vaped and I'm really surprised at that one in five over 15 we've got 10% of Canadians smoking right now um, Greg in Wasaga Beach. Thanks for the phone call. You go right ahead. Hi, Greg. Hi. I smoked. I smoked for thirty odd years driving tractor trailer, and I really didn't care what anybody thought. I finally quit the habit a year and a half ago, and the main thing is I, I can smell now. When somebody smoking or somebody has gone had a cigarette, do they ever stink? Wow. But, Nobody ever told me that I walked around smelling like that, and you go out to the restaurant and the bars, and you stink, man. It was it was disgusting, and and nobody ever told me. How'd you do it? How'd you quit? Uh, Champex. Interesting. The Ray Liotta stuff. Yes, I, I I finally I tried before, but I finally got off it. 
And I think it was about a month ago I picked up a cigarette and just lit it. And it was like, how did I smoke these things for 30-something years? Terrible. Wow. You know, the fa- again, thanks for the call, Greg. I want to take more calls after the break. I, again, I grew up smoking household. Uh, my dad just quit like snap of a finger in 1982. I remember them taking a course. They were gone like a couple nights a week. I'm like, cool. Like, can we order pizza? But they came back and my dad had just stopped. He had just stopped and he was like a college hockey player, good athlete. He ran, he taught me how to do everything sports wise. My mom had a, had a tougher time with it. She had a tougher time with it after having kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm curious to know if you think that discrimination is still there. Is it worse than ever? And if you're a non-smoker, give me your confession. Do you do you discriminate against smokers? Do you have a friend, a relative, and you're like, I'd see them more, but the cigarettes will come out, and I can't stand it. Like, again, you get a say, you get an opinion. So Toronto Today is all about